0: This is Eve Lazarus and you're listening to Cold Case Canada, where is Michael Smith. Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. If you've read my book, Cold Case BC, or listened to many episodes of this podcast, you know that I've talked a lot about missing people. Mostly, I've talked about missing children, because while fortunately this is really rare, When it happens, it's devastating, not only for the families who never get answers or a chance to really grieve, but it's also devastating to the friends who went to school with these kids, played with them, and for the entire communities who later searched for them. When I was doing the research for Cold Case BC, I spent quite a bit of time on Canada's missing website. This site is administered by the RCMP through the National Centre for Missing Persons and Unidentified Remains. There are currently 233 missing children on the Canada's Missing website, and that includes newborns right up until age 17. 31 of these children were from British Columbia. They disappeared between 1958 and 2022. The purpose of the website is to be used as an investigative source for police and the coroner's office so that they can solicit tips from the public that could resolve some of these cases. And it needs to be noted that these cases are just a small selection of missing children in Canada. I've produced podcast episodes about six of the missing children from British Columbia. There is Brenda Byman, a 12 year old who disappeared from outside Invermere in 1961. Philip Porter, a 16 year old who was kidnapped from his Kimberley, BC home. The entire Jack family went missing in 1989. Ronnie and Doreen Jack, both 26, and their two sons, Russell 9 and Ryan 4, disappeared from outside Prince George along the Highway of Tears. Then there's three year old Casey Bowen who vanished from her Delta, B.C. bed. And there's 14-year-old Lindsay Nichols, who was last seen near Comox on Vancouver Island in 1993. If you follow my Facebook page, Cold Case B.C., or the group page Cold Case Canada, you know that I put up a post with a photo on the day that a person was found murdered, or the last day that they were seen. It's a way to remember the person, A virtual place for the people who love them to gather, and in a best case scenario, to jog someone's memory who might have information that could help police solve a case. While I was on Canada's missing website, I jotted down the names of the other twenty-five children from B.C. to add to the Facebook pages. One of the listings was a very brief write-up about a seventeen-year-old boy named Michael Smith. Michael was last seen on New Year's Eve in 1967. The Post mentioned that Michael had long brown hair and blue eyes. He was wearing cream pants, a yellow shirt and a black suede jacket when he was last seen. The Post said that Michael was born in 1950 and was 5 foot 10 or 178 centimetres tall and weighed 161 pounds or 73 kilograms. It also mentioned that Mike was upset over a friend's death and was last seen at his North Vancouver home. While you can't get a more generic name than Michael Smith, I entered his name into newspapers.com. This is a searchable database of archived stories from more than 24,000 newspapers around the world. While there were loads of Michael Smiths, I couldn't find one mention of Mike Smith from North Vancouver. On December 30th last year, I put up a post on Facebook with a little information I had about Mike, along with a very grainy photo of him. I asked for more information, and thanks to the power of social media, many of you came through. We now know that Mike lived at 639 East 3rd Street in North Vancouver. He went to Ridgeway Elementary, then Sutherland, and on to North Vancouver Senior Secondary. Sleepy North Vancouver was just a bridge across Barad Inlet away from the downtown core and Vancouver's West End. Vancouver at that time was experiencing a major cultural shift. Mike may well have been at the first Stanley Park Bee-In in March 1967, smoking weed, dropping LSD, or maybe rocking to the music of Country Joe and the Fish at Seppoli Park. It was a time when the young protested the Vietnam War, and carried signs saying things like make love, not war, and burn pot, not people. It was the year that popular CKW personality Rini Castellani went on trial for murdering his wife, Esther, with arsenic-flavoured milkshakes so that he could marry Lolly, the radio station's 25-year-old receptionist. 1967 was also the year that the Government of Canada suspended the death penalty for all crimes of murder except the killing of a police officer or a prison guard. That was lucky for Rini Castellani, who was found guilty of capital murder. It was no wonder that Mike Smith was upset about his friend's death. A reader kindly gave me his name, and I was able to search for Robert Tribe. There are a number of news clippings, as well as a riveting photo taken by Matthew Kleiner. The photo shows Bob Tribe diving off the top of Siwash Rock in Stanley Park, almost 60 feet above the water, seconds before his death. Because according to newspaper stories, Bob, who had made this dangerous dive many times before, took up a dare from an elderly man and neglected to check that the tide was out. There is also a plaque dedicated to Bob Tribe and put up by his friends along the Stanley Park seawall at Siwash Rock. The plaque also likely serves as a deterrent for others thinking about diving off this iconic and dangerous rock. Mike Smith may have been upset about the death of his friend Bob Tribe, but if the data on Canada's missing website is correct, Bob died in June 1966, 18 months before Mike disappeared. Art Mackay is Mike's nephew, although he's one year older, his mother being the oldest of the nine siblings, and his uncle Mike the youngest. Art says that he and Mike were very close. There was a group of about 25 kids who hung out at Third Beach in Stanley Park that summer. Mike was there on Sunday, June 5th, 1966, the afternoon that Bob Tribe dove off Siwash Rock and died. What do you remember about Mike?
1: We were kind of best friends. Growing up, I spent all my weekends down his place or he was up at mine, and we hung around together a, a lot. I knew a few of his friends, and there was probably 25 or more kids that all hung around, and we spent every day out at Third Beach, usually. You know. We were out of the beach that day when somebody came running down and freaking out, you know, to Bob off I was rocky.
0: Was Mike there that day with you at the beach?
1: Yeah, oh yeah.
0: Was he yeah. with Bob?
1: Bob was part of the crowd that we all hung around, but he used to like to, to walk down to the, side of the rock and dive off it. That was the kind of guy he was. If he wasn't diving off Sibis of Rock, he was up Lynn Canyon, diving off the highest place you could.
0: Art says that when Mike went missing, police didn't take it very seriously. It doesn't appear they looked for him or put up any type of bulletin. What do you think happened?
1: I really don't know. I don't know whether he just walked or if somebody picked him up. I, I really don't know. Nobody that I know of has heard a word since. I don't think there was any kind of a major
0: James Howe lived across the lane from Mike and was a year younger than his friend. He says Mike was devastated after Bob Tribe died and he believes Mike left to start a new life. It just kind of got me that, you know, he was this 17-year-old that went missing and nothing was ever said about him again in the paper or anything I could find.
2: He just didn't want to be found. When he left, I actually walked by someone on the street, right out on 3rd Street, and didn't pay any attention. Then he had a hat on and had his head down. And I go, that's Mike. Well, maybe he's back. Maybe he didn't really go anywhere. And never thought anything of it. And then Hmm. all of a sudden, he was gone. And years later, I was playing ball with his brother, Butch. And he said, Mike, he didn't want to be found. He just wanted a new life, I guess. And he was in Toronto, Ontario. Had the brother heard from him? Actually, at that time... It about 38 years ago, and Butch said that he was back in Toronto and visited him. Maybe Butch told me that to keep me calmed down, or I don't know, but he said, no, he's fine. He just left. And he had a lot of close friends, and his girlfriend lived across the street and down a couple of houses, and he didn't even talk to her. He just disappeared. She had never heard from him again. They were really close. She couldn't believe it.
0: It's interesting that Butch would tell James that Mike was in Toronto, and even that he'd visited him after he left. It certainly wasn't something he passed along to his own daughter, Kim. Kim Smith-Dunn lives in the United States now and was too young to have ever met her uncle, Mike. She says it was her parents who first reported Mike missing. Her dad was Mike's older brother, Robert, or Butch as he was known then. She says before her dad died two years ago, he asked her to see if she could find Mike. So far, she's been unable to do that. When Kim recently asked her mother about Mike's disappearance, she was surprised when her mother told her to just leave it alone, that some things in the family are better kept secret. What's your sense of it, Kim? What do you think happened to him?
3: My dad told me that my dad and older brother, Uncle Ray, they caught him with some pot, some weed, I don't know if he was in the house or smoking or what. And they read him the riot act about not doing that kind of stuff. And that's what led my dad to think he took off. He was mad about that, and he was just digging his heels in about, I'll do what I want to do. And then my mom's theory is about the suicide of the friend and that he was super depressed, and she said that he was depressed, and maybe that was why he was smoking marijuana. I don't know.
0: It was 1967, um, I think everybody was.
3: My dad was in the Air Force, so he certainly wasn't, and that's probably why he read the riot act to him. He had some pressure on him, and there was five brothers, and they were all ganging up on him.
0: Do any of the family think he was so depressed he may have killed himself?
3: I've never heard that. I know that there's been speculation that he's been gone so long he certainly would have reached back out that something nefarious came of him. Not necessarily that he did it, but that somebody else did. I do know the police reached out a few times with cadaver bones that had been found, and nothing came of it. You said that your dad had asked you to find what happened to him. He threw guilt on himself because he had given Mike hell, and then he's gone. I don't know if it's a coincidence of timing, but regardless, that's how my dad viewed it, so it was a bit of a guilt, and maybe that's why he wanted to try to find him before Granny passed away, because he wanted to relieve that guilt. So he obviously thought he was still around. I think my dad did,
0: yeah. Mike would be seventy-three if he's still alive, and he may well be. So Mike, if you're listening to this, please get in touch with your family. They've searched for you for years and years and never stopped missing you. The Monumental Scandals Tour by Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours digs into the dirty foundations of the city's most iconic heritage buildings. There's a sensational murder behind the old Vancouver courthouse, backroom deals at the Hotel Vancouver, salacious dances at the old Orpheum Theatre, and the chief of police, who liked his gambling bribes, delivered in paper bags. This walking tour includes a private look inside the Marine Building, an Art Deco masterpiece built by a rum runner during American Prohibition. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com, and save 15% off your booking by using the code coldcase. I have some great news for Vancouver listeners. Those of you who live in the Lower Mainland and love jewelry and design will be excited to know that Erin Haken has opened a studio in Vancouver. Erin brings her degree in art history and studies in jewelry making together with her love of antique styling. To create really unique handcrafted pieces, go to erinhaken.com, that's E-R-I-N-H-A-K-I-N.com and receive 15% off your order when you use the code COLDCASE. How many children are missing in Canada? I wish I could tell you. How many children are missing because of abduction, human trafficking, Or as police like to say, foul play, I don't know. Unfortunately, the definition of a missing person, anyone whose whereabouts are unknown, is so broad that it renders annual statistics published by the National Centre for Missing Persons and Unidentified Remains completely meaningless. According to NEMPA, 28,033 children were reported missing across Canada in 2021. 5,544 of them were from British Columbia. Most of the children who were reported missing were found either straight away or within a few days. How many were not? We don't know. We don't know from looking at those numbers how long a child has been missing, whether they're a teenager who's late home for dinner, a body that hasn't been recovered after a boating accident, or a toddler that was snatched off the front porch of their home 10 years ago. In the case of Mike Smith, we don't know why he's missing. Did he move to another province and start over? Did he have an accident? Did he take his own life? Did he lose his life at the hands of someone else? And if he killed himself or was murdered, why has no trace of him ever been found? We just don't know. While I was researching Cold Case BC, I came across the story of Lucy Johnson, a 25 year old mother of two who went missing from her Surrey, B.C. home in 1961. On May 14, 1965, Marvin Albert Johnson reported that Lucy, his 25-year-old wife and mother of their two children, was missing. When Surrey RCMP started to investigate and question Marvin and his neighbours, they were surprised to learn that the last time Lucy had been seen was September 1961 more than four years earlier. Lucy left behind two children, Linda seven and Danny six. The lengthy time lag between Lucy's disappearance and her husband's reporting her missing threw up a big red flag to investigators and Marvin immediately became a person of interest. When a neighbour mentioned that they'd seen Marvin digging up his backyard, detectives thought that he likely murdered his wife and buried her on the property they excavated the Surrey Yard in search of Lucy's remains. Nothing was found except for the septic tank field he was digging. It's odd that Marvin reported his wife missing at all, but according to his daughter Linda, she and her brother Danny had gained a stepmother when they were still quite young. So it's likely Marvin filed a missing person report at the time so that he could declare Lucy dead and marry Gloria. Linda also told a reporter decades later that she and her brother were forbidden to say their mother's name in the house, and her father refused to answer any of their questions about her. For years, Linda hoped that her mother was alive and would come and get them, but as the decades wore on, she became sure that Lucy was dead. All Linda had to remember her mother by were three photos and a few blurry memories of playing at a local park and receiving a bike and a new doll. Christmas before Lucy vanished. Her father, she said, could be a mean drunk, but he never hurt her or her brother. Police did not have enough evidence to charge Marvin with his wife's murder, but over the years, detectives continued to investigate. When DNA was introduced in the late 1990s, the Mounties took samples of Linda's DNA to compare with the DNA samples from the National Center for Missing Persons and Unidentified Remains database. They never found a match. Tragedy struck the family again in the summer of 1976. Twenty-year-old Danny, who was living in Kamloops, B.C., was out drinking all night with friends at nearby Scotch Creek. He dove into Shuswap Lake and drowned in shallow water. Marvin died from a heart attack in December 1999. He was 66. He'd been a driver for the Department of Highways and had lived in Langley, BC with Gloria for 26 years. For decades, he had been the chief suspect in his wife's alleged murder and he died without ever finding out what happened to her or having his name cleared. And then, in June 2013, 52 years after Lucy vanished, Surrey RCMP highlighted her case as part of their Missing of the Month series the renewed interest in her mother's case prompted Linda, now a grandmother, to start her own search for living relatives on her mother's side of the family. Using the information on her parents' marriage license, Linda placed a classified ad in the personal section of the Yukon News. It read, I'm looking for my relatives. My grandparents' names are Margaret and Andrew Carville. My mother's name is Lucy Ann Carvel. She was born October 14th, 1935, in Skagway. The ad included Linda's email address. And then Linda did what the RCMP couldn't do. She found her missing mother. Rhonda was at the Whitehorse Star where she works as a receptionist when her older half-brother, Howard, called her. Their aunt had seen the ad with the names of her parents and the year her sister was born, and she had phoned Howard. Rhonda immediately went to get a copy of the newspaper and when she saw the ad, her first thought was that, like Howard, Linda had also been given up for adoption. Rhonda had no idea that a mother had been an open missing person case in the Surrey RCMP for over half a century. She called her mother to tell her there was a missing report on her. Lucy told her, I'm not missing. I was never hiding. When Rhonda asked her mother if she had other kids, Lucy told her yes. That was the first that Rhonda knew of it. Rhonda emailed Linda and told her that they were half-sisters and that her mother lived in Whitehorse. They exchanged photos of Lucy. Linda sent the photo she'd had of a mother aged about 17, and Rhonda sent Linda more recent photos. Rhonda then called Surrey RCMP to tell them that she'd seen the picture of the missing person in the newspaper, and it was a mother. Lucy was born in 1935 in Skagway, Alaska, and raised in Whitehorse and Carcross in Yukon. She became pregnant at 16 with Howard, who was adopted by a family in Vancouver. Lucy also moved to Vancouver, where she met Marvin, a mill worker at BC Manufacturing. They married in 1954 when she was 18 and moved into his new Westminster house. Later, they moved to Surrey. Lucy told Linda that Marvin was physically abusive to her, drank heavily, and cheated on her. When, at age 25, she decided to leave him, He refused to let her take the children. After Lucy left, she met Rhonda's father and they moved to Dawson Creek, where Rhonda was born in 1962, followed by John the year after. The family then moved to Invermere and in 1980 they settled in Whitehorse. Rhonda told me that her mother was pleased to discover news of her long-lost daughter. Their first phone conversation was uncomfortable at first, but Lucy offered to pay for Linda's plane ticket to Whitehorse so she could meet all her relatives, and Linda was excited to go. During her visit that September, Lucy gave Linda her mother's button blanket, a traditional gift from her mother to her eldest daughter.
1: If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com.
0: You've been listening to Cold Case Canada. Where is Mike Smith? Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like more information on this or other cases, please go to my website, evelazarus.com, or join us on the Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada. I'm Eve Lazarus, and I'm a reporter and an author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. I host and produce Blood, Sweat and Fear, the Story of Inspector Vance, Vance wasn't a police officer, as his title suggests. He was the first forensic scientist to work for a police department in Canada, and certainly the first to carry a badge and a gun. Vance was so good that he was known as the Sherlock Holmes of Canada, and his forensic skills were so advanced that in 1934, there were seven attempts on his life by criminals afraid to go up against him in court. Each episode follows a different major crime that Vance helped to solve. You can find Blood, Sweat and Fear on Apple, Podbean or your favourite podcatcher.